Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. This month is World Blood Donor Month and the South African National Blood Service is running a campaign featuring some of those people who have benefited significantly from having received blood transfusions. Tashnika Rambali is a young girl who's been diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia and she'll be joining us a little bit later to tell us about her story. And this month is also Men's Health Awareness Month. So this evening, I'll be joined by Dr. Amir Zarabi, a urologist with Stellenbosch University's Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences. And we'll be talking about how men with vasectomies can be dads again. Professor Frank Graber is head of the Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery Division at Stellenbosch University, as well as the head of the Craniofacial Unit at Tigerberg Hospital. He's also the microsurgeon who was part of the team who performed the world's first successful penile transplant, and he recently teamed up with the World Craniofacial Foundation and Smile Foundation SA to perform breakthrough surgeries using advanced 3D printing technology to create bioengineered bone. And this enabled them to perform life-changing operations on two young African children, and he'll be telling us more about that. And then we'll be finding out about South Africa's next pain-in-the-neck epidemic. It's called text neck, and it's a relatively recent concern which affects millions of people across the globe, and it's now making its way to South African shores as technology becomes more readily available. And to tell us more about this, I'll be joined by Jonathan Blake, a Johannesburg physio who's seen this condition far too many times, he says, at his Santon practice. And also on the line is Richard Andrews, MD of Inspiration Office, and they're stockists of global and local ergonomic office furniture. And just a reminder that there's a list of available documents for Health Matters. Just go to the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. If you like any of them, post a message on Facebook. But please remember to include your email address so I can send them to you. And you can also email me directly on healthmatters at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, June is World Blood Donor Month and the South African National Blood Service is running a campaign along with some of the many South Africans who have survived serious health issues thanks to receiving donated blood and blood products. Tashnika Rambali is a young girl who was diagnosed with lymphoblastic leukemia and she's joining us now. Tashnika, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Thank you for having me. So let's start off with your story. I mentioned that you were diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic um, leukemia. When did this happen? Uh, it was in December 2013, just after I started my matric exam. Gosh, that was just the start of your life and then that? Yeah, it was just, everything just blown out of proportion, you know. You think you have your future ahead of you and then you just hit with this. So what actually was the progression from that point? What happened? It must have been quite a shock initially. And then you have to come to terms with that. What was the procedure? What, what happened? Did you go straight into hospital? What was the next step for you? Oh, yeah, it, uh, you didn't have any time to process it at all. It was straight into hospital and straight. Uh, I started uh, therapy on the 29th of December. So even New Year's and for the rest of the month, I was in the hospital. I was in hospital for months at a time just getting therapy. So it was just a fast progress of uh, treatment. You certainly learned a whole lot of new words, I believe. Oh, yes, a whole, whole lot of new words. And you had to learn them really fast. Yes, overnight, in fact. You know, we were thrown into this scary situation where we knew absolutely nothing. We were so self-absorbed in our own lives that we didn't realize that there was terms and conditions like this out there. 
Now, one of the things that ha- happened with your treatment was that you had to receive quite a number of blood transfusions to maintain your blood levels. Yes, uh, a part of chemotherapy, as much as it kills off the cancer cells, it also kills off your good cells in your body, mainly your blood and your blood byproducts. And the problem, though, is that, I mean, this is the time when you were needing this blood. Was There was actually a major blood shortage at that time. I think January 2014, we hit quite a bad patch. Oh, yes. I mean, just being newly diagnosed and then hearing that you have to wait for blood for a couple of days on end and, you know, just being new in the situation and fearing for your life, you've got to deal with a shortage of blood. It was really a scary situation. And this, I think, is what sort of started you on your path now. Yes, yes, it did. It played a major role in it. And not only just because of myself, it's because my doctors and my nurses were telling me stories of how many patients they had to turn away due to not having blood on stock on, on hand. And that really got me thinking, you know, it's not just my life on the hand. There's so many other people out there that need this and they don't have it. At this stage, you were actually quite fortunate. You went into remission after your first phase of chemo, which was, was a very good thing. Yes, yes, I was. I count myself as blessed and absolutely lucky to have gone into treatment so well and progressed so well over the time. I'm just grateful for my life, and I think I just need to do my best to give back, and which is why I've headed down the road I have. So, what have you done? You you've actually been out there, sort of motivating people to get involved. Yes, I've uh, started up my own blood drive. It's called the Tashnika Rambli Blood and Bone Marrow uh, Drive where we encourage people to be donate blood every three months or so, or I think it's 60 days, and we encourage people to become bone marrow donors as well. Because so you need that. Yeah. You need both of those. You need both of those. Yes, no, there's a shortage of blood donors and bone marrow donors out there. And there we need to get the people out. I believe, Tashnika, that you tried to donate blood when you were still at school, but you didn't weigh enough. And you were loading yeah. your pockets up with stuff, trying to, <laughs> and they didn't, they, didn't take, they didn't buy that one. So they wouldn't let yes, you donate no, blood. No, no, they didn't uh, catch on at all. They just like, they saw the face, they saw the size. They're like, <laughs> no way you can weigh that much. And they were just like, take the blaze off. And that's when all the killers came off. And I was just like, yeah. <laughs> and now, unfortunately, you can't donate now. No, no, not with my illness. I will never be able to give that life. How do you find people respond to you when you talk about it? It must have quite an impact though, Tashnika, because you're talking from a position, not of somebody who just says, look, it's a good thing to go out there and donate blood. You're talking from the position of somebody who really needed this and there were times when it wasn't available. Yes, it's it's made quite an impact on people. When I do rely, tell them the severity of it is and what it can do for people, people kind of realize and it changes their lives and they go out and they uh, contact more people and they tell them the need for it and you know it's just gone a total spread where everybody has this information and they feel they need to do it so they do it more often and it's been a great success so far. I mean you wouldn't be talking to us now if it wasn't for people that had donated blood. Yes that is so true. You know, that, that is what I don't think people often realize is that, you know, it could happen to you, it could happen to me, it could happen to any one of us for any reason. It could be, I mean, I spoke to somebody last week who'd been in an horrific car accident and she said if it hadn't been for the numerous blood transfusions that she'd had, she wouldn't be talking to me last, on the radio last week. And that is what I don't think people realize until they're in the situation like you were, how dire the situation actually is. That is exactly it. I mean, you, you don't only look at it as somebody who's fighting cancer. It could be somebody in an accident, somebody who's had a baby, somebody going for a major operation, or somebody who just has a blood disorder that needs the blood all the time. 
there's always a constant need for supply of blood. And what are you do? Are you studying now at the moment? Have you managed to go back to studying? Yes, I have. I've just started my first. Uh, I've just completed my first semester at DUT. I am studying biotechnology. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. that's that's great. <laughs> so you're, it's called Tushnikarambali Blood and Bone Marrow Drives. Oh, do you have a Facebook page? People can follow you, find out where the next one is. How do yes. people get to know about this? Yes, we do have a Facebook page. All you need to do is search for that name, and you just find it. My mom controls the page. And she updates stories about other cancer kids so people can see the reality of it. It's not just me. There's so many other kids out there. And we also update about uh, blood drives that are being held. We post about our future blood drives. So if you need any information, you just go onto that page and you can just find everything. And what are you doing with the South African National Blood Service? Are you going out as an ambassador talking to people with them? Yes, I am. I'm currently, they give guest speaker for most of the events and I do help them quite a bit wherever they need me to speak and tell my story that's my bit that I can do and I will go out there and do it so you're on a mission are you Yes, I am. It the world. <laughs> it's a great mission to be on, and I hope more people listen to your story because it's, it's very important to hear from somebody who has been in the situation that you've been in because most of us, luckily, have not been there, but we can, we can be the people that can help people like you. Yes, exactly. I mean, I feel that as human beings, we need to have a story and a face to put to you to realize the severity of it. I'm more than happy to be that story and that face to everybody. And the thing that I always say, whenever I talk about blood donation, it's it's so quick. And you get to have a little sit down, take a break from your day at work, go in your lunchtime if you have to. Um, have a little break, you get a cup of tea, possibly a biscuit, and um, enjoy a little break while you're helping to save somebody's life. Oh, not just one life. That one pint of blood that you give actually saves three people's lives. Well, there you go, three people. That I mean, yeah. And you just take took a break during your lunchtime to go and do that. Yes, I mean, I mean, to you it may just seem like giving blood, but to the person that's receiving it and to that person's family, they're incredibly grateful to you for life because you've given that person back to them. So there's no greater honor than being somebody's hero. What is your story from here onwards? Do you, are you still going for more treatment, for therapy? What is your situation at the moment, Tashnika? Uh, I have completed my main chemotherapy treatment. Right now I've been gone on to uh, two and a half years of maintenance therapy which is auto chemo tablets for the next two and a half years. And you'll be fine. Yes, doing and great. <laughs> you're doing well. And it's thanks to some people out there who were... Oh, it is thanks to a lot of people out there because I have received a lot of blood and it's thanks to them that I received their blood on time or I probably would have not made it through my treatment. Well, I wish you much success in your future. It looks like you're on the right path now and you're going to be very successful. And keep up the good work with these blood drives. And we really need more people like you out there putting a face to this. And hopefully we can stock up those uh, the stocks, if you like, rather, you know, to get more blood into the stocks at the blood services. But Tashnika, thank you so much for joining us and telling us your story this evening. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Good night to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Tashnika Rambali is a young girl who's been diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. She's on the right road to recovery now. She's in remission, a wonderful story. But if you'd like to find out more about becoming a blood donor, you can take a look at the website. It's sanbs.org.za. You can call them toll-free on 0800 11 9031. Or Tashnika is on Facebook. It's Tashnika Rambali blood and bone marrow drives. Have a look at that. You'll find out when she's doing some more of these um, drives and go and support her and go and donate some blood. Health Matters with Karen Key. 
Professor Frank Rava is head of the Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery Division at Stellenbosch University, as well as the head of the Craniofacial Unit at Tigerberg Hospital. He's also the microsurgeon who was part of the team who performed the world's first successful penile transplant, and he recently teamed up with the World Craniofacial Foundation and Smile Foundation SA to perform breakthrough surgeries using advanced 3D printing technology to create bioengineered bone, and this enabled them to perform life-changing operations on two young African children. Professor Hrava, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, good evening, Karen. Thanks uh, for inviting me. You seem to be involved in groundbreaking stuff all over the place in the last couple of months. Yeah. <laughs> Look, we do this type of work for um, many years, also the microsurgery, and um, yeah, it's a privilege to be part of, of groundbreaking surgeries and groundbreaking stuff in medicine. So it's tell amazing. Me, tell me about this recent surgery. Who were the patients? There were two little girls. Yes. Yeah, we had two little patients. So the one is um, Grace from um, Zambia. She's seven years old. And she was born with a condition that is uh, known as nasofrontal dysplasia. Basically, it's, uh, um, we also call it hypertellurism. The, the eyes are very far apart. There's a um, huge area in between the eyes, usually consisting of either bone or um, nothing uh, in between. Uh, and then she also had a, um, another condition that complicated the whole matter, encephalocele, that's basically brain herniating through the skull of the, the, the base of the skull. So there was basically no bone separating the oral cavity from the brain. Wow. And um, the other ch- child is a six-year-old child from Nigeria, Agigere, and uh, she is suffering also of a congenital uh, syndrome, which is called Cruzon syndrome. And that is... Um, a syndrome that affects mostly the face and the skull, and uh, the bone doesn't grow normally, and it, it basically gets stuck, and um, the mid-face doesn't develop, uh, the skull bone doesn't develop, there's raised intracranial pressure, the um, eyes basically pop out, and uh, the mid-face is so far back that they have problems breathing. So <clears throat> you came together with some surgeons from America. Tell me about that. Yes, um, actually, um, a friend of mine, and he's sort of the founder and chairman of the um, World Craniofacial Foundation. They do a lot of charities. They also did the, or, or Ken Salia, who's the chairman, he did the uh, separation of the Egyptian twins, which were um, basically a craniopagus twin fixed at the at the skull bones from Egypt. And um, he basically found me um, last year and asked whether we can do the surgery um, of Grace here in Cape Town because she's from Zambia. His foundation sponsored the first surgery, which took place three years ago in Mexico City. And um, unfortunately, he was involved with the surgery there as well. And unfortunately, she developed severe post-operative infection. And about 60 to 70% of the skull bone got necrotic, and she was left without skull bone and had a huge bone defect. And um, he decided then, because we know each other quite well, that uh, it would be ideal if he can do it in Cape Town, not too far for the parents to come, and um, we've got good facilities here to do the surgery. And we did the planning basically um, online uh, with telephone conferencing. And uh, yeah, it's an interesting story. 
And there were some other surgeons from the States, but there was also some South Africans as well. So it was very much a combined effort. Yes, we've got a craniofacial team here. We, um, we've got a, uh, the craniofacial unit at Tigerberg Hospital where we operate mostly together with um, uh, the, the neurosurgeons, uh, Professor Hartzenberg is usually involved, and also with the maxillofacial surgeons and uh, plastic surgeons, of course. And um, Ken Salia from Dallas came, and he brought um, also his friend and colleague, a pediatric neurosurgeon from Washington, Bruce Dirick. So it was quite an international team. And uh, some of the um, equipment was actually produced or came from Europe. So we had teleconferencing before the surgery over three continents to plan the wow. surgery and to get everything ready. Now, if these children hadn't have had these operations, which happened in May this year, so they're very recent, what yes. would have happened to these children if they hadn't had this particular surgery now? Grace, uh, the problem with this huge skull defect is um, she always had to wear a helmet and uh, she had to be under supervision the whole time uh, because of problems with injury, you know, she couldn't leave the house. So she was basically confined um, to a life at home under protection. And then uh, Aki Kera had such a bad uh, mid-face uh, hypoplasia that she developed right heart failure, also known as corpulmonale. And um, she would have died if he, if he um, wouldn't have operated on her or if, if she wouldn't have been operated in the next year or so. Now, where did this whole 3D printing come in? What exactly did you do? I know you sent samples of the, or, or sort of their samples of their skull the dimensions and everything else to America for this printing. What exactly did that all entail and why was that necessary? Well, let me explain to you what it entails. We, um, bas we basically did 3D or CT scans and we, we um, did 3D um, reconstructions with the CT scans, which... Uh, Basically, we sent all the, the uh, CT scan information to a company in America, a company that, that um, Ken Salia uses for many years, and he basically built up the whole 3D thing with them. And with the 3D models, we did model surgery uh, with our teleconferencing, and we made, with a model, we developed um, um, the framework which is a resolvable framework that was made in Europe. And um, we made um, a negative model from the 3D information, which they used in Europe to make the model ready for us, sterile and a resolvable model that we basically inserted as a framework into the skull defect. And this we packed with um, demineralized bone, which is bone taken from cadavers. And then we used a very strong growth factor, a bone morphogenic protein, to induce bone healing and bone growth in, the, in, in Grace's case. In uh, the other child, Agikera, we also did a, a CT scan, and we, uh, did th we used that to um, make 3D models. And on the 3D models, we did a model surgery. We basically released the whole mid-face and the forehead from the base of the skull and, and from the skull bone. And uh, we designed, or we had a company design uh, spe special distractors that are inserted on the skull bone, under the skin. And with these distractors, we um, want to push the face forward for about half a millimeter to a millimeter every day. And the 3D 
<clears throat> planning and the 3D models enabled us to plan everything beforehand. So during the surgery, we basically just did the osteotomies and we released the, the bone and we inserted the distractors at the place where we planned it, put everything back, and we could then uh, immediately afterwards start with the distraction. So quite groundbreaking surgeries you performed here. Yeah, it's uh, um, especially the, the bone engineering. Uh, I've Personally, I've never seen such a huge skull defect, and um, it's quite an innovative method that was utilized to induce bone healing. Did you have and, any challenges yeah. during the operations? Sorry? Did you have any challenges during the operations? Yeah, the biggest challenge uh, had our anesthetists at Tigerberg with uh, Aki Kera with a severe um, right mm. heart failure, and they did a brilliant job. And then after that, the um, staff from our pediatric ICU unit to uh, get the child basically through the first two weeks after the surgery. She stayed um, for two weeks in the intensive care unit, and they did a tremendous job to, to get her through. Um, the surgery, of course, was challenging as well, but um, all these these surgeries and procedures, you can only achieve good results if you work in a in a good team, and it's been an amazing team effort that it's, we've done. It's just been more than, just slightly more than a month now. How are the girls doing? Grace is back to um, Zambia. She's doing very well. We've got contact with her and uh, well, with her mom, and she's healing well. There's no problems. And Aki Kera is still at Tigerberg, and uh, we're busy with the distraction. She, um, her breathing has improved a lot, and um, she's doing very well. We think that uh, we probably be finished with the distraction in about three to four weeks, and then we're going to send her back home and get her back in six months to take all the, the hardware out. So is this something you're going to have to follow these children for a while afterwards now? These conditions are severe, and um, both of the children will need uh, another surgery in the future, to, um, um, especially um, for, de for deformities, mental deformities with the frontal dysplasia. We still have to do some refinements there of the nose, of the soft tissue, more plastic surgery related, and the same also here. They tend, because of the um, severity of the underlying condition, they tend to get some sort of recurrence with, over the years and we might another surgery. So we will follow them up closely. But a wonderful job so far. I mean, they, they seem to be doing remarkably well and groundbreaking surgery. I, I'm always so proud when we do these things here in South Africa. And here's another example of the amazing work that is done here by our surgeons in our medical facilities. Professor Hrava, thank you so much for telling us all about that and for joining me on the show this evening. Thank you very much, Colin. Thank you. Have a good evening further. You too. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Professor Frank Krave is head of the Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery Division at Stellenbosch University, as well as the head of the Craniofacial Unit at Tigerberg Hospital. He recently teamed up with the World Craniofacial Foundation and Smile Foundation SA to perform breakthrough surgeries using advanced 3D printing technology to create bioengineered bone. For more information on the Smile Foundation, you can take a look at their website. It's smilefoundationsa.org. Health Matters with Karen Key. 
Well, a vasectomy is a reliable form of contraception, but patients should not have the perception that they can have vasectomies now and just reverse it later when they change their minds. The success rate of a regular vasectomy is only 15 to 20 percent, but with a special microsurgery technique, Dr. Amir Zarabi, a urologist with Stellenbosch University's Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences, he learned in the USA, he achieves up to 80 percent success rate with vasectomy reversal. Dr. Zarabi, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. I think let's start off for those who are thinking about, well, let's just have a vasectomy as, as a form of contraception. Not such a good idea. Well, um, well I mean, if you are yeah. certain that you finished your family, then yes. a vasectomy is certainly a good idea. It's a relatively um, cheap form of contraception. Um, it's not very invasive. It's a small procedure on the man. It doesn't have any um, side effects to the body on the long term. So if you are certain that you've finished your family, it is a, it's a very good form of contraception. But as I mentioned, not something you'll say, well, I'll just use it as contraception and when we're going to have a family, we'll reverse it then. That's not it's a good no, idea. No, definitely not. And that is part of the discussion that a, a doctor needs to have with a patient who is considering a vasectomy, is to make them understand that it is a permanent form of contraception, not a temporary uh, matter. As you mentioned, it is pretty much without risks and it doesn't have any hormonal influence on the body and pretty much a once-off expense. Exactly. Um, there are some uh, possible complications, but it's really very seldom that you get complications after a vasectomy and it's really a 15 to 20 minute procedure and can be done under local anesthesia. Now, the problem is, I think it's a societal issue, is that we, we're seeing so many more divorces and all families breaking up, sadly, that men will possibly go into a second or third marriage and now think, oh, well, maybe I'll have some more children, and now they have a vasectomy. What has been happening up to now? What has the procedure been up to now? Um, for men who wanted their vasectomies reversed, in South Africa, um, the option was basically to just have it done by a general urologist, mostly, who would then just reconnect the tubes. Um, this is really um, an, a very old method, and the success rate of this is, is quite low. Um, in the States and in Europe, they've been doing a, a microsurgical vasectomy reversal since the late 70s. But um, for some reason, the, the expertise and technology never made it to South Africa, so um, our guys have still, still been going on um, the, with the old method. But you went over there. That's correct. Um, when I saw, uh, you know, the way the vasectomy reversal was done here and what the success rate was, I started reading a bit in our urology uh, books, and um, I realized that there was a better way to do it, and then I went to the States and, and learned how to do it. It's got a very fancy name. It's called vasoepididymostomy. Have I got that right? That's correct, yes. And what exactly is different about this procedure? Basically, um, a normal vasectomy reversal, or uh, yeah, the, according to the old technique, one would just reattach the, the severed ends of the tubes to one another. Um, a vasoepididymostomy is basically a bypass procedure where you connect um, the, the vas deferens to the epididymis of the testicle, which is further back. And um, this is to bypass blockages that form within a few years after a vasectomy. And what we also do during the vasoepididymostomy procedure is to actually look in theater under a, magni uh, under a microscope that provides 400 times magnification. We actually check for the presence of live sperm and we search until we do find the live sperm and then we do the reconstruction where we have found the live sperm. And that obviously is giving you the highest success rate. Absolutely, yes. 
And is it a far more complicated surgery than it was in the past, obviously with the microsurgery now? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is a three-hour operation. Um, it's done completely under a surgical microscope, which is a huge piece of equipment. Um, the stitches that I use is, um, you cannot see it with your naked eye. It's extremely thin. It's the same stitches they use inside the eye. Um, and the tube that I work with is basically the, the thickness of a human hair. And in that little tube, you have to make a small hole and attach that in a watertight fashion to the bigger tube in order to, to get the bypass procedure done. So it's really technically quite a challenging story. Gosh, okay. Um, oh. And let's talk about vasectomies before we go in any further with, with reversing them. Yes. Um, there's obviously new ways of doing a vasectomy now as well. As, I mean, what is different between the old vasectomies and the now the new ones? Basically, um, there are many ways to do a vasectomy that have been described. In essence, you basically just need to interrupt the flow of seminal fluid and sperms from the testicles to the outside. So what most doctors do is to cut out a piece of the tube and then they would tie off the ends to close them off. But studies have shown um, that tying off the ends is really not the best idea because those ends can just fall off and then you've got an open tube again and the sperm can find their way into that open tube. So um, I read a bit about uh, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. They publish guidelines every few years. And um, according to them, the safest way is to not only cut out a piece, but to also put a piece of extra tissue in between the two ends that you have um, separated. Um, and this will decrease the chance of them ever meeting up again. And then I also um, burn the inside of the tube with a special um, instrument in order for it to close up. How easy so, then is it to reverse the new type of vasectomy then? Um, well, I make it easier for myself in the sense that we leave one of the ends completely open. Um, the piece of the vas deferens, which is a tube that is cut, on the testicle side, I don't tie it off or I don't burn it, and that is to uh, decompress the whole system. Because what complicates vasectomy reversals after a few years is the fact that blockages develop. And if you leave it open, then those blockages are much less likely to develop and the, the reversal procedure would be easier. Sure. Is there any sort of time period, if sort of from when you've had the vasectomy, is there sort of, if you've been sort of 10 or 12, 15 years, you can say to the patient that it's a bit late. Is there any sort of time sort of frame that you shouldn't be, go past? Um, not with the new method. With the old method, after about three or four years, it really wasn't worthwhile doing the operation anymore because most men would have developed a blockage and would need a, a bypass procedure. With uh, the microsurgical technique that I use, there's no limit in the time. I've reversed men who are 29 years after their vasectomies. Um, I recently analyzed my data, and the average number of years since vasectomy for my patients is at the moment uh, about 12 and a half years. Oh, wow, okay. So the microsurgical procedure has really changed that dramatically. Now, men are often sold on the idea of having a vasectomy by being told it's a relatively quick procedure. You can yes. do it in, this, in your rooms. Is this, now, what about the new one? Is it the same, or is that a much longer, more involved no, procedure? No, not longer at all. Um, it's exactly the same time uh, time it takes to do it. You can still do it just under local anesthesia. Um, it's just a, a few other maneuvers we do. It actually, it's actually part of it. It's actually quicker than the old method because I don't use any stitches. Um, we don't cut the skin with a blade. We just stretch it open and make a very small hole, grab the, the tube through it, cut it, 
and work on it in that fashion. So it's um, basically the same time that we spend in theatre. And because and a lot of, of there have been a number of uh, unplanned pregnancies after failed <laughs> se- <laughs> failed and that has been a source of, of yes. um, litigation, as you can yes, imagine. Absolutely. Um, there is still, I mean, even if you do a perfect vasectomy, there is still a one in about 4,000 or 5,000 chance that in some way um, the sperm can still find their way uh, through it. But that is one thing that we should discuss with our patients before they, they um, have the operation done. And that is a worldwide thing. And um, it doesn't matter what technique you use, there is always this one in a 5,000 chance that it may be not unsuccessful. And the new procedure is that sort of has the same success rate? It has, um, it has the same success rate. It's one of the, um, the Americans also published the techniques that has the best success rate, and this new technique is one of those methods. But um, I think it's important for patients to, to realize that while a vasectomy, um, according to this technique, is one of the most safest uh, ways of contraception, there is not a, a 100% success as it is with, you know, most other contraceptives, mm. but the chances are extremely good. I mean, one in 5,000 is really a small chance. That's a very small chance. I mean, yeah. they, they always say even condoms aren't always, you know, Exactly. No, I mean, a condom has got about a 2% failure rate, so yes. that's pretty high. It's pretty high. So, yeah. but, but it is, as you know, when, when, you, when you're weighing up having a, a woman being ster- sterilized or a man having a vasectomy, or it, you, there is no real comparison because it is so much more traumatic for the woman than for the exactly. man. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's very strange worldwide. The trend is for um, more women to have uh, sterilizations mm. done. And people think it's because there is some, in, in some cultures, there is the perception that. Having a vasectomy is almost like being castrated, where it takes away your masculinity and your sex drive and so on, which is certainly not the case. But um, even though vasectomy is much less invasive, tubal ligations in women are performed more um, more commonly. And there's far more after effects, and it's a surgery, absolutely. a major yes, surgery. And it's a bigger procedure. Absolutely. And what about any risks associated with a vasectomy? Are there any? Well, um, you've got the early risks of bleeding and infection that can happen afterwards. Those are really small. It's about 1 in 100 or 1 in 200, and it's usually minor where you can just take some antibiotics and and the the small infection will go away. Um, Basically, the feared complication is uh, post-vasectomy pain syndrome, and uh, about 1% of men can develop this, and this is where they've got long-term aching in the testicles after having had a vasectomy. Um, in some cases, the pain will go away after a few months or years, but uh, in some men, it persists and is quite debilitating. Uh, in my practice, I've done a few reversals for men uh, who didn't want to have more children, but just had disposed vasectomy pain, and doing a reversal can cure them of this pain. Oh, okay, so it can be re- the pain can be taken away with a reversal. That's unusual. It can be, Gosh, yes, okay. yes. Um, I've done a few of those cases, and um, uh, all of them have been successful. And also the way that I do the vasectomy is to, uh, one of the, the reasons that I use in the new technique is to also decrease the risk of having this post-vasectomy pain. Oh. And uh, because we leave that end open, there's not a build-up of pressure, and which is uh, believed to, to contribute to the pain. Right. So you find the syndrome more, more applicable to the older type of vasectomy yes, than the new sure. one? Right, but this is still something I think it's not, as you said, it, it's, there's a strange perception out there amongst men about what will happen to them if they have a vasectomy. Mm. But as we've been discussing, it's a relatively, 
in inverted commas, minor procedure, it is, it's still a procedure. I mean, I've had patients going to work the same day. They come for the vasectomy in the morning and they're back at work that afternoon. So it really is a minor procedure. And, you know, they'll they'll be doing their wives a favor or their partners Absolutely. an absolute favor because yes. it is so much less traumatic um, than it would be for a woman. Yeah, I think a lot of the, um, the onus for contraception falls on women in, in relationships. And that is not something that needs to be like that. For, for women taking hormonal you know, tablets and so on for long term, so they have side effects. And I think if you're in a stable relationship and you finish your family, and I think of a vasectomy really as a, a, an important place as far as contraception is concerned. Now you have a website, maleinfertility.co.za. That's correct. What can people find there? Well, basically, um, there's a lot of information on vasectomy and vasectomy reversal. Uh, which is the things that I specialize in, especially the microsurgical reversals. And then um, there's also other issues about male infertility, uh, men who don't produce sperm, um, and some new procedures we have developed uh, with a microscope to, to get sperm from those men. So, um, yeah, there's really a lot of info on, on the website. Well, I'll give it out again so people want to go and have a look. But, Dr. Zarabi, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. I hope a lot of men out there have now learned a lot. Mm, I, so, thank I you certainly very much, have. But thank you so much for your time this evening. All right. Thanks so much. Good night to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Amir Zarabi is a urologist with Stellenbosch University's Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences, and he was talking there about a special microsurgery technique with which he achieves up to 80% success rate with vasectomy reversal. To find out all about things to do with males and fertility or infertility, have a look at his website. It's www.maleinfertility.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, there are 37.2 million adults in South Africa and 97% of them have a cell phone. And it's not surprising that texting is a popular form of communication for all of us here in South Africa. And this contributes to global statistics of more than 1 billion text messages sent every month. Now, just think about that. That's a lot of texting that we're all doing. And it had to happen. It absolutely had to happen. There's a new condition. Apparently, it's now been called South Africa's next pain in the neck epidemic. Something called, wait for it, text neck. And to tell us a little bit more about this, I'm joined this evening by Jonathan Blake, and he's a Johannesburg physio who's seen this condition far too many times at his Santon practice. And also joining us is Richard Andrews, and he's MD of Inspiration Office, it's stockists of global and local ergonomic office furniture. You know, if we can't stop texting, at least we can sit properly when we're doing it. Jonathan and Richard, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you for having us. Well, Jonathan, I think let's start with you. You've seen this this condition. This is all new to me. I didn't realize that you can suffer from something called text neck. Definitely. We're seeing significant increases in our practices. It's what one would classify as a, as a typical RSI, or repetitive strain injury. They were quite popular um, a couple of years ago before the advent of the ergonomic keyboard. Things like carpal tunnel syndrome in females, particularly. That's not being sexist. That's just a statistic of life. It's just taking one step further. I just want to take you up on, on, on the phone issue and, and as regards TexNEC as a whole. I kind of think we need to look at a, at a, at a better name. I think TexNEC automatically implies that all this is related to is texting. I think we need to look at the broader perspective, and I think Richard will agree with me in this regard, in the sense that we need to embrace, we need to consider all electronic devices. So it's not just your mobile, it's your tablet, it's your computer, mm. it's where your screen is, it's where your keyboard is. And I think that's where the ergonomic issue comes in. Ergonomics is, is, is not a new science, but we're only starting to understand its full indications now. And I think 
the people like Richard and their company are, are, are making strides in, in, in that regard. And I think they're also correcting a very skewed spend in that regard. I, I've never got why they're going to spend money on a vibrating leather lazy boy that sits in the boardroom and gets used for an, for an hour every week while the typist is sitting on a milk crate. <laughs> I think those are, those are issues that need to be addressed, and we need to look at the big picture. It's very peculiar to the mobile, and I think that's because the mobile is used in very compromised positions. And then one of the biggest problems with the mobile is, of course, is squinting onto a very concentrated focus screen. But having a huge monitor on your desk in the wrong position is going to be no better than staring at a, at a small mobile screen. So what actually happens to our neck when we're doing this? Well, you're putting the neck in a compromised position. We need to consider all the structures. Firstly, and, and, and most obvious, you've got the vertebrae, the bones. And sitting between each of the, of the bones in the neck and in your upper back are the discs. And that's all being held by supportive structures, ligaments, tendons, and then moved by muscles. And, you know, muscles do just that. They, they move. You know, we, there's so much emphasis being placed on the whole hunter and gatherer issue at the moment. And the only thing we seem to be hunting and gathering these days is information and likes on Facebook. So we need to sort of get out there and move. And muscles don't like to be held in constraints of this position, particularly a position that, that is held for long durations and holding a structure that, that, that is subjected to abnormal mechanical stress. They're, they're natural curvatures of the spine, and those curvatures need to be preserved. They're not there by default. They're there by design. And when you're sitting and, and squinting into a screen or crouching over a desk at the wrong height or looking at a computer screen that's sitting at the wrong height, then you're going to put your, your, these structures that I mentioned earlier on into a compromised mechanical position. So, Richard, what can your furniture do to help us here? What can ergonomic office furniture do to try and make us sit properly at least? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly I, I would start by saying I agree 100% with Jonathan. I think, I think that the concept of text neck really makes the, what is a very big problem very small. Mm. You consider the iPad one came out in April 2010. But yet, look how the advent of iPad has changed the way we work. And certainly at Inspiration Office, we, we are having a look at the way people work today and saying actually there's, there's a number of things that can be done to make people work more efficiently and more to Jonathan's point, making people preserve that natural S shape of the spine and make sure you're working ergonomically. And these range from things like height adjustable desks uh, to monitor arms, making sure that your monitor screen is at the right height, looking at footrests, looking at third level accessories, significantly looking at lighting. And I think lighting is one thing that's often ignored in, in the office space today, direct lighting uh, for staff. You know, we, we say to all our clients when we meet them, you know, we have smartphones, we have smart devices, we've got smart cars, but in reality we've got stupid offices. <laughs> um, and this is where people spend all of their time. And when you look at the speed of change over just the last five years and how technology has changed how we work over the last five years, you know, we need to implement tools that are going to be able to support future technologies and the way, the way work is changing. I've been seeing it quite often now, people talking about the standing office. What do you think about that? I mean, obviously, you're having an adjustable, height-adjustable desks and all those sorts of things, but people seem to think now, Jonathan or Richard, that it's better possibly to stand for part of the day. I mean, certainly we're seeing a big increase. You know, certainly Scandinavian countries, um, I believe in many places it's almost mandatory that you need to have a height-adjustable desk. And we've installed a number of client offices in South Africa where they have desks that can go from sit to stand. 
and Jonathan, I mean, you might want to comment here. I'm not sure so much about working standing as much as it's about encouraging movement and people changing posture during the day um, while they are working. I certainly agree with that, Richard. I, you know, it, it's the same. I, you, you probably recall a couple of years ago when, when, when the kneeling chair arrived and it was going to change everybody's life. Well, it didn't. Um, it wreaked havoc with a lot of people because the, 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 the theory behind the, the kneeling chair was very good, but the practical application was very bad because the people sitting in the kneeling chair didn't have the inherent, I hate the buzzword, but let's use it, core stability to be able to sit properly. And the same thing applies to standing. It's all very well to advocate a standing office, but do people have standing efficiency? You know, we, we actually are not designed to sit, simple, simple fact, particularly in a badly ergonomic chair, so something that doesn't give you lumbar support, something that isn't height adjustable and something that, 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 that is at the wrong height. But standing could solve a lot of problems provided that you stand properly. It's all very well to have an ergonomically efficient chair if you're not sitting in it properly. It, uh, so I think, and, and probably the best cue I've seen is, is, is the head office. I don't know if I, can, if I can use a name here, but the gym equipment that's so popular in, in certain of our gyms today, a company called Techno Gym in Italy, their, their, their boardroom has got recumbent bicycles. They, don't, they, they, they sit and they have board meetings while they're pedaling on their bicycles. Oh, wow. that's, that's taking it to the next level. But all of these things theoretically sound like a good idea as long as people are doing it properly. People can stand very badly and subject their body to just as much abnormal mechanical stress. Very interesting in, in Richard's point about the lighting. It's something that I've never considered. And maybe correct lighting needs to be looked at as well because that will then take your focus away from the concentrated screen of your mobile device or your, or your iPad. But I think, as Richard says, the whole principle about standing is not so much is not so much the emphasis on standing, but the emphasis on, on movement. Many of the, the, the computer companies today are building software prompts into their computers. So every now and then a little man jumps up and says, have you done your squats today? And then you sort of stand around and squat 10 times and whatever. But I think subtle introduction of, of, of encouraging movement rather than, than sustained sitting is, is, is where ergonomics is going to play the big part. It's rather alarming to think that we can't sit or stand properly. I mean, gosh, we should be doing that by now. But also the fact that we're becoming such an immobile society. Just not, we're sitting there staring at technology and not doing anything other than staring at things. And, and, and I don't think we fully appreciate what, what that sitting position is. I mean, just as, as, as you're sitting talking to me now, think of what's happening in your hip flexor, for example. That's a big powerful muscle that's sitting in the front of your thigh. Fine. That's, that's an anti-gravity muscle. That's designed to swing your lower limb forward in gait. You've taken that thing, you've, you've scrunched it up, you're sitting on it, you've disengaged it. You're sitting on your gluteus muscle, which is, which is the body's other primary anti-gravity muscle. It's not for sitting on, it's, it's, it's for walking with. It's not just the position, it's, 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 the, it's the effect of position on structures which are actually designed to move. Now, if we're not treating all these things that are happening to us through basically our own fault, we're not moving enough, what are the consequences here, Jonathan? We're seeing a lot of mechanical issues associated with the spine. So stiffness that is occurring, and, and, and very often when you go to a physio, they will do movements, or a chiropractor for that matter, they will do movements which we classify as being sort of physiological, those are movements that the spine is, is, it does on a, on a day-to-day basis, and then accessory movements. So those are the movements that are capable that the joints are capable of doing in your neck and upper back, but that they don't do habitually. And those are the things that we very often work on when you want to restore what we call normal mechanics, the normal mechanics of, of the spine. 
soft tissues, they get tight, you know, your classic muscle knots, the, the, the knots that everybody complains about in their neck and upper back. And one of the big problems associated with all of these is abnormal tension in the nerves. The nerves are, are fixed at two ends, at their starting point and their end point, and then they optimally glide in soft tissue sandwiches. Well, those sandwiches are being scrunched and scrunched and, and, and subject to abnormal pressure. So we're starting to see a lot of referred nerve problems as well. And Richard, do you have any tips when it comes to how we should sit and what we should be sitting in or on to try and avoid this problem? I mean, obviously, we, we, we can't get away from the fact that we spend a lot of our time sitting, but we need to be able yeah. to do it properly. For sure. I mean, we, we are realizing more and more, in, and we tell employers when we meet with them, you know, they've got a duty of care to their staff, and they need to realize that the well-being of their staff really is a bottom-line issue. And companies are starting to, to realize this. And, you know, I say in the context of tech's neck, there's probably five things that we would point out to staff that they should be aware of in your office space. The first is just to take cognizance of your posture. As, as Jonathan says, you know, the natural S-shape of your spine is the natural air shape of your spine and every activity that you do in the office you should be preserving that so just be conscious if you're sitting hunched over your desk that s is becoming a c and you can you can think for yourself of the problem that that's going to create for you in your back then you know jonathan mentioned time spent in compromising positions and i think we need to limit the time that we spend in these in, in the office and the way to do that is escape lengthy periods of being desk bound walk around move around the office. We know when you move, it stimulates blood flow. When there's blood flow, there's creativity. So it's in the interest of the employer and the employee um, to be mobile in the office. Um, the one that I try to do with my device is get my device at eye level um, rather than bending my neck. You know, if where I'm working on a device, be it, be it my iPad or my phone, um, have, have my phone at the level where my eyes are looking directly at the screen. We've discovered um, through studies that there are actually nine new postures that have been led to since the, the iPad came out. And you need to get yourself work tools that are going to support these postures. Now, at Inspiration Office, we have a number of chairs that we, we sell that are designed to, to support these new work technologies. A couple of chairs, we've got one called the, the, the POP, um, which is designed to give you the perfect operating posture as you sit in the chair and be able to be adapted to the different ways that you're sitting and the different types of work that you're doing. I think it's quite interesting that if you talk to employers in an effort to optimize their real estate costs, what they've tended to do is shrink their desk sizes, um, no longer needing these big L-shaped desks. And as Jonathan says, you know, you don't have these massive monitors stuck in the corner of your desk. But it makes sense that your workspace has changed, the work surface, as the technology has changed. However, we've noticed the one thing that hasn't changed is the chair. And in many places, people are now trying to work with new technologies new systems, but still sitting in these archaic chairs that were never designed with these kind of technologies and these kind of um, issues with our postures in mind. Well, it's almost a case of almost having to relearn how to sit, Jonathan. Absolutely. Richard makes a very important point about posture. You know, posture is not an automatic function of the human body. We, we, we don't. You know, posture is not, not an inherent subconscious thing. It's a concentrated conscious thing. If, you, if, if, if a ballet dancer walks into a room, you're going to notice her straight away because she's going to have that almost accentuated elevation of, 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 of the shoulders, retracted scapulae, a nice curvature in the lumbar spine. That doesn't happen by mistake. That's happened by repetitive training because that position has been drummed into her from, um, from, from a very early age. Like muscle memory, now it, pretty correct. much. Correct. Now it's become part of her, of her movement repertoire. And if you're not focusing on those, those kinds of things, sitting, sitting is a wonderfully 
simple thing to do, and it's an easy thing to do, but it's difficult to sit correctly. And as Richard points out, it's not the existence of a good chair that's going to make you sit properly. It's, it's your awareness of the fact that you are in a good chair so that you can mold and you can adapt to the ergonomics that are built into the chair. So sitting, you do, you do need to relearn the points that are being made about the heights and the positioning of things. One of the benefits of the electronic age is not having that big cathode rayed mm. screen box sitting in the corner of your desk. The fact that you can move your electronic devices around is not necessarily a bad thing, and it should be done, because if you're moving them, then at least you've, you're changing your, your area of focus or the, the direction of sustained mechanical stress if you rotate to one side, for example. But very often, although the device can move, you are going to put the device in the wrong position. So things like height, reachability, and readability become, become important. Well, it looks like we've got our work cut out for us here because uh, we don't all end up with sore necks and bad backs and all sorts of things, which I think most of us walk around with most of the time. Um, we're going to have to start relearning how to sit properly, how to use our electronic devices correctly, and it seems we've got a lot of work ahead of us to do all of that. Richard Andrews and Jonathan Blake, thank you both very much indeed for joining us this evening. I was chatting there with Richard Andrews. He's MD of Inspiration Office and they're stockists of global and local ergonomic office furniture. If you'd like to have a look at what they do supply, there is a website, inspirationoffice.co.za. And I was also talking to Jonathan Blake and he's a Johannesburg physio who's seen this condition of people having problems with their posture and with pain and neck pain and back pain, all due to the way we sit and the way we actually interact i think it's possibly the best word with our devices that we all walk around with all day jonathan richard thank you both very much once again and i hope we've all taken a lot away from this interview this evening that we're all going to start learning how to sit properly and how to interact with our mobile devices the sabc has signed a code of conduct that is enforced by the broadcasting complaints commission of south africa under the code, we are committed to giving news that is accurate, comment that's fair, and programming that is not harmful, does not amount to hate speech or violence or explicit sex. If you think we are not living up to that code, then you can inform the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. Direct any complaints in writing to the BCCSA, PO Box 412-365, Craig Hall 2024. That's the BCCSA, PO Box 412-365, Craig Hall 2024. Send a fax to 011-326-3198 or an email to bccsa at nabsa.co.za. For more information, please visit bccsa. The Office of the Ombudsman for the City of Johannesburg officially opens its doors on the 1st of July. The establishment of this office is in line with the Joburg 2040 Growth and Development Strategy that puts the people of Johannesburg first. The strategy calls for both leaders and employees of the city equally to embrace good governance and nurture a culture of transparency and accountability. Joburg, a world-class African city. Health Matters with Karen Key. And that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening, just after nine with time to travel. So join me then. And don't forget, there's a list of available documents for Health Matters. If you'd like any of them, you can have a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM, or drop me an email to healthmatters at safm.co.za. 
Time now for some nighttime music with Stephen Kirker. Hello, Stephen.